Qualcast Nation, we have a special episode with my boy, Dr. Brett Scher, host of the Diet Doctor podcast, an amazing show with incredible content on low carb and the benefits of introducing that lifestyle. So we're going to jump on it soon. But first, I want to tell you about a couple of our most recent endeavors on September 27th. We are doing a conference, a virtual summit on how to create resilience, how to be, reduce our stress load. We got Michelle Sorensen, Dr. Tracy Douglas. We got Dr. Adrian Matheson to cover how we address this with our kids as a family, individually. So important during these tough times. Go to solvinghealthcare.ca backslash resilience and sign up for the conference. It's all by donations and 20% of the donations will be going to our charity, Bridges Over Barriers, to serve underserviced kids. We love it. Thank you for, for supporting that. Also, if you missed our conference on low carb and ketogenic approaches to help, it is available. We got Dr. Paul Mason. We had Ivra Cummins. We had Joy Kitty, dietitian specializing in low carbon. We talk about these benefits because all it comes down to is how we could get our guests healthier during this pandemic and beyond because these are such important things that we're not talking enough about. So you could go to solvinghealthcare.ca backslash low carb, sign up there, $29.95 and get your mind blown by knowledge that was being dropped. Okay, guys, Dr. Brett Scher. I love him. Every time I'm learning more about this guy, I got a bit of a man crush. Not only is he board certified trained cardiologist, did work in preventative medicine. Actually, I heard on a recent show that he's actually did some personal training. Man, this guy's a warrior. He is a medical director of Diet Doctor where you're getting amazing content on low carb, whether it's recipes, whether it's evidence-based practices, whether it's just overall health advice amazing content there. And the podcast is balling. And as you may hear on this show, I totally envious of his hosting style. He's got amazing flow, amazing transition, much better than yours truly. But he is uh, so full of knowledge. In this episode, we really focus on how the low carb approach has benefited his cardiac patients. Like there's so many myths when it comes to fats, when it comes to low carb, when it comes to protein, what, what have you. Like what is the truth behind some of these claims and what are the benefits is he seeing in his cardiac patients and the value of being able to come off some of these medications and how his patients are feeling is I think you guys are going to thoroughly enjoy this episode. And without further ado, y'all, Dr. Bresher. Welcome to Solving Healthcare. I'm Quadro Caramante. I'm an ICU and palliative care physician here in Ottawa and the founder of Resource Optimization Network. We are on a mission to transform healthcare in Canada. I'm going to talk with physicians, nurses, administrators, patients, and their families because inefficiencies, overwork, and overcrowding affects us all. I believe it's time for a better healthcare system that's more cost-effective, dignified, and just for everyone involved. Quadcast Nation, we have the one and only Dr. Brett Scher on the mix. Dr. Brett Scher, how are you doing today? I'm doing great. Thanks so much for having me, Quadjo. This is so incredible. Medical director of Diet Doctor, cardiologist, excited about low carb. 
We're going to have so much questions. It's going to be a great discussion. But maybe first, can we talk about like how you got to this space? Because I know a lot of cardiologists and there's not too many I could say that talk so adamantly and also with so much conviction about lifestyle changes and specifically a low carb approach to health. So I'm dying to know, how, how did you get here? Yeah, yeah, I'll be happy to talk about it. Thanks. You know, I, I was trained like any cardiologist in, in a general cardiology program, but I had the benefit of having a combined general cardiology and preventive cardiology program. So the lifestyle part was always sort of near and dear to me and always something I wanted to focus on. But it was an Ornish style program, which is basically what, you know, any preventive cardiology program is going to be like these days. But it was smoking cessation and exercise and physical activities, stress management, community building, and then, of course, the nutritional component of it. So that's what I learned. And I was just fired up and excited to go out and sort of change the world and prevent heart disease. And, you know, it, what I found over time was that people just had such a hard time complying with the nutritional therapies and the exercise therapies. I don't want to make it sound like just nutritional, but the lifestyle therapies in general were very difficult for people to comply with. Or if they swore they were complying with it, they weren't getting the results that they were hoping. And then as a hospital, you know, seeing people in the hospital as a cardiologist, the kind of revolving door of people coming in with their heart failure exacerbations and their stents and their coronary disease, it just, it became fairly disheartening. And I guess it all depends on your perspective, right? You could say, well, we're really helping these people by putting stents in and putting them on these medications. And yeah, stents are miraculous. You really are helping people. But that's treating a local, that's locally treating a systemic disease, right? And they would just come back. And so it came to a point where I'm like, okay, I need to do something different. So that's when I started uh, Boundless Health and I started a, a wellness center with a friend of mine. And the idea was just to be able to focus more on lifestyle interventions that people weren't getting it because they just didn't have the time, the logistics, the explanations, the demonstrations. And so we were going to solve that. And just by luck, the health coach who I was working with, who's a good friend of mine, is very knowledgeable in ketogenic diets. And at first, he was just going along with my, you know, count your cal- reduce your calories, move more, um, low fat approach. But eventually on some of the tougher patients, he said, Hey, why don't we try a ketogenic diet on this guy? And I looked at him like, you have three heads, you know, I'm like, what are you crazy? I'm a cardiologist. How could I possibly recommend a low carb, high fat diet to people? That's just crazy. He looked at me and he said, well, have you actually kind of researched it and looked into it? And I had to be honest. No, I hadn't. Right. I was just, I was just perpetuating everything I'd been taught. But then once I looked into it, oh my God, did my eyes open up? I mean, you just can't imagine that there's so much research out there that actually exists, scholarly research in peer-reviewed journals that's never talked about in cardiology training or in any type of medicine training. And I realized, wait a second, this there's actually evidence that it can reduce cardiovascular risk factors, that it helps with weight loss. It's like, okay, well, I got to try it. So I tried it on myself and it was amazing the effects it had in terms of making me less hungry, giving me more energy, weight loss that I you know, didn't really know I needed to lose, but weight loss like that. And I said, okay, time to try it with my patients. And some of our most challenging patients, we saw dramatic results. And once, once you see that, you can't unsee it. And then I just went down the rabbit hole to read all the research, read all the books about it, just start getting more experience, talking to some of the other physicians who'd been doing this. And look, I'm not the one to say there's one diet for everybody and everybody needs to be on a low carb diet. But the fact that this hadn't been taught 
and hadn't been discussed in my med school residency fellowship. And then the first like 10 years of my cardiology practice, that was amazing to me. And so I said, I need to do something about this. I need to start shouting this from the rooftops. So everybody knows it's at least an option. So everybody knows that there's science behind it and what the science is for low carb nutrition. And, and what I saw in my patients and what I saw myself is that I wasn't writing patient non-compliant with lifestyle therapies. I wasn't writing patients struggling to maintain the diet. I wasn't writing diet not having the effect we hoped. Instead, I was writing patient loving the diet, maintaining the diet. HDL has gone up, triglycerides have gone down, weight has gone down, feeling better. I mean, that was that's just eye-opening. And it, it revitalized my passion as a physician, for one thing. And that's a, something that we can maybe get into more because more and more doctors who are doing this are showing that they that they have more enthusiasm for their practice because their patients are doing better and they have these tools they didn't know they could have. And then through this process, I got connected with Diet Doctor as well. And thank goodness for that, because now as their medical director at dietdoctor.com, I have an even broader scope of the number of people that we can reach with our message of being as evidence-based and science-minded as we can and giving trustworthy information for people to learn, both individuals and clinicians to learn what is the proper role for low-carb what can it not do? Who's it good for? Who's it not good for? And and so people can start understanding how it can be used as a therapeutic tool. So that was a sort of a long answer to, no, <laughs> to your question. Honestly, Brett, it was great because in so many ways you covered a lot there. And I mean, this part that like we've talked before, but one part of what I really valued in, in terms of your stories, like you tried it yourself. Like you actually, yeah. you know, you read about it, you learned about the evidence, you tried it yourself and you you got to have that personal experience. And by doing so, like you come with conviction, you're able to bring this to the table with your, your patients and say, hey, you know, like I've actually tried this as well. And as you get more experience, more testimonials saying like uh, the effect it's been having on your patients. But the other thing I didn't realize, and maybe I got to take a d- deeper look into this, is that you're saying like even that there's peer reviewed evidence to support what we're, we're saying. Cause like, you know, I think as the diet doctor, uh, medical director, like sifting through our nutrition papers or evidence can be challenging, but to what, what extent is the evidence out there? Like, is it, is it mostly observational? Is there RCTs? Like, is it, how, how strong is that evidence? Yeah, that's a great question. Such an important point. I mean, one of my biggest one of the things I like to, to promote the most is that the level of recommendation or the strength of the recommendation has to match the level of the evidence. And mm-hmm. I think that's something that we've really fallen victim to with the low fat message that the strength of the recommendation far outseeds the level of the evidence. So I have to be honest when it comes to low carb and keto, that we don't have outcome trials showing reduced heart attacks, improved mortality. Those just haven't been done, right? You need 20 plus year studies to show that. And those just haven't been done. We have plenty of intervention studies, randomized controlled trials, showing improved weight loss, showing improved metabolic health with blood sugar, insulin, HDL, triglycerides, showing reduced inflammatory markers. And I I know there are others that I'm missing at the moment, but so there's, you know, these, all these surrogate endpoints Oh, and reduced overall cardiovascular risk when you plug people into the 10-year cardiovascular risk calculator that that cardiologists and, and doctors are using more now. So we have plenty of evidence showing that. Now, where we fall short is saying, yes, we have, you know, the 10-year, 15-year randomized controlled trials, 
or even the 20-year observational trials, because here's where the part of the problem is. One, who's going to fund that research, right? We're not selling drugs. We're not backed by a pharmaceutical company. We don't, we don't have the deep pockets that the pharmaceutical industry has to fund these incredibly expensive trials. So that's not going to happen. And then the other problem is, well, how do you define low carb? Because I'm sure a number of your listeners have, have heard, well, wait a second, wasn't there a study that came out that showed low carb diets increase mortality? And we've covered these at, at dietdoctor.com because when you define low carb as 40% of your calories from carbohydrates, that's a completely different story. But that's what a number of these observational trials did. They looked at 40% of your calories from carbohydrates. So that's, if you're eating 2000 calories per day, that's 200 grams of carbohydrates. That's how many carbohydrates you eat in a week if you're really following a low carb diet. But that was their daily limit of carbohydrates. So you're comparing apples and oranges. You're absolutely not comparing the same thing. So is there a reason why it would be different? Absolutely, of course. Because when you're lowering the carbs to the level of 20 or 50 grams per day, one, there's no room for refined carbs and junk food. It's likely all coming from whole foods most of the time. But also your body shifts, like your body metabolism shifts. So you're actually burning fat for fuel and you're not burning as many carbs for fuel. And that metabolism has a downstream effect that changes things physiologically. So there's absolutely a reason why a 50 gram carb per day is much different than a 200 gram carb per day. So part of the trouble in interpreting the evidence is there's been a sort of incorrect definition of low carb in a lot of the studies. And then the other part is having to recognize that it's surrogate markers, health markers, which are important, but not the gold standard of mortality and cardiovascular disease and heart attacks. No, that's great. Thanks for that, Brett. Like the other question I had too, in terms of maybe evidence or even just from experience, like how strong do you think when it comes to like secondary prevention? So like, I would imagine a lot of these patients that you've had, you know, are already had an event. Maybe they've already had a heart attack. They've already had established heart failure. Like, do you get a sense any of these approaches reverse disease or really have a impact on having uh, reducing secondary outcomes? Yeah. Again, unfortunately, no outcome trial results. And in terms of reversing disease, again, that hasn't been looked at either. Mm -hmm. Now, you know, how do you define reversing disease? That's also an interesting question. You know, people who have used the qualitative coronary angiography to show reversal of disease, that is, (laughs) that's a pretty poor quality study um, with Mm -hmm. just an enormous uh, range of error. So I'm not so sure that those show reversal of disease. But um, so no, I mean, the answer to the question is no, we don't have data to show that. But here's where sort of thinking about it makes sense. I mean, whether you're talking primary prevention or secondary prevention, you have to say, what are their risk factors that could have led to this? Well, you can't do much about genetics. You can't do Mm -hmm. much about age or gender, Mm -hmm. right? But then what are all the other risk factors? Cholesterol is certainly one. And we can get into LDL and, and how LDL may not be the same risk in everybody, but also metabolic health, right? What is, what is one of the biggest risk factors we have is type 2 diabetes? And mm-hmm. what's another one? Hypertension. And then when you combine the whole metabolic syndrome, that's another risk factor. So if you can have a dietary intervention or a lifestyle intervention that lowers all those risk factors, I mean, that's pretty powerful. So until we have those outcome data, I'm going to be pretty excited about something that can improve metabolic syndrome that can lower blood pressure that can potentially reverse type 2 diabetes it's going to raise hdl lower triglycerides lower ldl remnants those are all fantastic results in my mind 
for ways to reduce cardiovascular disease or cardiovascular disease risk. And now the other important point is, can you do it in a way where people enjoy their meals, where people are going to enjoy their life, where people are going to have more energy and where people are going to be able to restrict their meals a little bit in terms of the timing, right? Time-restricted eating. We have growing body of evidence now that time-restricted eating can be very beneficial for those same metabolic markers. Mm. Um, so if you can have a lifestyle that makes that easier, that's also likely beneficial. And, and for a lot of people, that's the role low carb can play to m- improve that metabolic health, improve the ability to do time-restricted eating and do it in a way that you enjoy and can do long-term. So again, it might not be right for everybody, but I think it has to be an potential option for everybody because for some people, it's exactly what they need. I love it. Like personalizing it. It's not, we're not all about uh, being dogmatic. It's about, hey, maybe this is good for you. And the other thing you mentioned in Brett that I think needs to be emphasized is that like you see it, it's sustainable and you're yeah. seeing results. Like to me, you know, we talked about this earlier. I don't think people realize how quickly you could reverse disease, like when it comes to hypertension and, and diabetes. Like, what has been your experience in terms of like timelines and seeing patients uh, turn around? Yeah, it's a great question. And you know, the thing that makes a low carb diet the most dangerous is how effective it is. Because you take somebody <laughs> on insulin and SGLT2 inhibitors and sulfonylureas and ACE inhibitors, and they go on a strict low carb diet they're going to be hypotensive and hypoglycemic within a couple of days because it can work that fast. So that's why, you know, a diet doctor, we made a free three hour CME course, completely free online for anybody to take the CME course, which to instruct doctors, how to help their patients through this, because you need to know ahead of time, if someone is on insulin or glucose lowering medications or blood pressure lowering medications, you need a plan in advance because it works that quickly. Now it works much more quickly for blood sugar than blood pressure. Blood pressure can take weeks to months, but blood sugar, my goodness, it could just take days for that blood sugar to lower significantly. And people are getting off their insulin within days to weeks to months, like completely off their insulin. I mean, think about the the cost savings, the logistical savings of having to inject yourself all the time. And, you know, the other side effects to insulin are weight gain, right? And Mm -hmm. furthering hyperinsulinemia and insulin resistance and be able to get rid of that is phenomenal. I mean, so... And that, and that can happen very quickly. And Brett, maybe this is, I shouldn't be saying this, but, you know, I'm internal medicine trained. So like this is in my wheelhouse. I'm just learning this shit recently. Like I could guarantee a lot of my colleagues, when you talk about how quickly you could reverse disease, they will deny what we're saying. Well, they'll be like, are yeah. you kidding me? No, this is ridiculous. So like, what is preventing us from adopting these strategies? Like it's, and like the fact that, you know, especially in light of COVID, like how, how come this is not being promoted? How come there are not millions of cardiologists, millions of internists, millions of endocrinologists saying, hey, let's use these approaches right now, especially yeah. in light of COVID to mitigate some of these risks? Like what's the barrier? Boy, Quadra, that is a great, great question. And, you know, there are a couple of different parts to it, but I think the biggest part is just momentum, right? We've all been trained in a pharmaceutical driven model. I mean, that's just the way medicine has evolved. And, you know, I don't know how it is in in Canada, but here in the US, we also have all these metrics we need to check, right? Are the people on people with diabetes? Are they on an ACE inhibitor? 
people with diabetes with type two diabetes is their A one C at a certain level, or on they are they on the right medications to get them there? You know, someone's LDL at the right level. All these check marks is nothing to do with truly the health of the patient. It just has to do with the checking these boxes. And so drugs are the most convenient way and the most the way people have the most experience to get there. Now, if you if any doctor out or clinician out in the audience or you were you ever taught how to safely take drugs away? Were you ever taught how to get people off of their medications? Was deprescription a word you ever heard in your training? No. I mean, it, I was the same way. It's just, it's not in our culture and our society or hasn't been till now. So what I strongly hope is whether, whether people start using low carb or not, is that people start thinking from the mindset of deprescription. People start thinking of the mindset of, well, how do we get people off these medications that cost money and have side effects if we can achieve the same results in other ways? So I think a big part of what, to answer your question, why it hasn't happened and why there aren't millions of people doing this is one, just the culture, but two, open up any medical journal, go to any, you know, continuing education course or any big conference for the ADA or the American Heart Association. Who are their sponsors? Mm pharmaceutical companies, mm. device companies, right? That's where the money's coming from. And so when you say that, people say like, well, come on, we're not all shills just, you know, doing what's what what people are paying us to do. And no, I'm not saying that. I'm not saying every individual is in the pocket of big pharma. But if they're sponsoring educational programs, if they're sponsoring the medical journals, if they're sponsoring and funding the research studies, then it makes sense that the majority of the attention goes towards drugs and the minority of the attention goes towards lifestyle and deprescription. That's just the way the culture is set up. So I think one thing we absolutely need to do is groups like the American Heart Association, the American Diabetes Association, they need to sever all ties from pharmaceutical industries and from, from cereal companies and food manufacturers and you know, vegetable oil producing companies and cereal, you know, the, the fact that they get funding from these companies just blows my mind because then they're, they're then making guidelines and recommendations. So even if there is no impropriety there, just the appearance that there could be, I mean, that needs to go away. So that's one thing I think needs to happen right away. But, but also just, I mean, education, you, you know, having your podcast, me having my podcast, the diet doctor, trying to get more voices that are, approaching this from the standpoint of how can we help our patients? That's what it comes down to. How can we help our patients live better lives? And getting them off of expensive medications with potential side effects is certainly one way to do it. And finding a lifestyle that they enjoy and helps them feel good is another way to do it as well. So hopefully the message and will keep getting out there and spreading. And soon you won't have to ask that question. Why aren't people promoting this like crazy? Oh man, but there's so much things there. Like, I literally got a bit of chills when you said, like, we never been taught how to de-prescribe. Like, right. when you just take a step back and think about that, you know, all these years of medical training, all this stuff, like, that's not even, um, like, it's not a part of medical school. It's not a part of training. Like, it is brought up in terms of, you know, trying to demedicalize people as much as possible. But that concept of really trying to, like, get rid of as many medications as possible and even whether it's lifestyle or other means, just offsetting that from our patients. is It's so true. Like we don't get taught about how to deprescribe. That just 
took me back a little bit. And um, but getting to your point too about just getting the momentum, I also think you know not only the dark side, but also like I think more more patients and people out there are, are starting to be more aware of the possibilities and just being more and more of an advocate for themselves or their family members and saying, hey, why aren't we trying this? And I, I think, you know, sometimes coming from the patient too can just be as powerful, but you and I, if we can impact a doc or two, like that's an exponential, right? Like, so oh, I think absolutely. it's so important. Yeah. yeah. And that's what motivated us to come out with a CME course. Like we know we can reach individuals on a one-on-one basis, but if we can reach, you know, a hundred doctors and each of those doctors can influence 500 patients, that's, you know, all of a sudden that knowledge is growing and more people are being helped. Yeah, yeah absolutely. Because no, And it's true. Like to me, it is pretty intimidating. The idea of like trying to get people, like the approach of getting somebody off their insulin. So the fact that diet doctor and it's free y'all. So there's no excuses that we're not to, to check this out. Free CME course on how to, to approach this. Brilliant. That's why we call changing the boogie right there. One of the things that often comes up it comes up a ton, actually, when you talk about low carb slash keto is, is like these high fat approaches, right? Like you're ingesting a ton of fattier content. And, you know, since I could remember, whether that's through media, whether that's through ads, high fat content is bad. And I guess I just want to get your perspective on, you know, is this coming from science? Is this coming from evidence? Is this from marketing? Like, where does that momentum from? And should we be worried about it? Yeah, Oof, there's a lot there. So first, the concept of a keto diet, when people hear a keto diet, they think butter and cream and steak wrapped in bacon, cooked in more butter. And sure, that is a version of a keto diet. And there are about a 100 other versions of keto diets, you can be a a vegetarian keto or a vegan keto. And you can, you don't even have to be keto. You can be moderate, low carb, and you can, you know, above ground vegetables, leafy greens, cauliflower, broccoli, Brussels sprouts, green beans. Those are all part of a, of a low carb diet as well, because the above ground vegetables are very low carb and fish and tofu. They can all be part of it. So this vision of keto as being only butter and steak and, and bacon is not accurate. Then to get to the second point of your question is, why did we have why, why do we have this belief that fat is so bad? And again, it comes down to does the strength of the recommendation match the quality of the science? And there the answer is no, because the overwhelming majority of the studies to suggest a link between higher fat intake and now specifically higher saturated fat intake and increased cardiovascular risk or increased mortality is all from these very poor quality nutritional epidemiological studies. Now, hopefully most people understand the difference between observational randomized controlled trial, but randomized controlled trial, you take two groups, separate them randomly into, sorry, you take one group, separate them randomly into two groups and make one change and see what happens. And by doing that, the groups are relatively matched, right? They're about equal in terms of who they are at the baseline. But these observational trials, you just collect data from thousands of people and follow them for 20, 30 years. And then you crunch the data and say, okay, well, what factors are associated with increased risk of heart disease or dying? And there you've made no intervention. So people live the way they live. And when you go back and look at those studies and you say, okay, those who had more saturated fat had a higher risk of heart disease or dying. Well, what else did they have? 
Well, they also had more and more likely to have hypertension, type two diabetes, to be overweight. They were also more likely to smoke, less likely to exercise. And you can say, all right, well, you can try and factor in controls for those things in the studies, but really it's a best guess. You're trying to guess how much those factors will affect the outcomes. But what about all those things you can't control for, right? It's called the healthy user bias or the unhealthy user bias. The people in those studies who are eating saturated fats and smoking and more overweight, they're going to see their doctors less. They're not going to manage their stress as well. Maybe they're not sleeping as well, right? When I give my talks, I show this slide of like either this woman doing yoga or this, you know, very fit woman drinking her green shake and this guy sitting in the corner smoking a cigarette, right? Who's more likely to be a saturated fat eater and who's more likely to take care of themselves in ways that we cannot measure. So that's the first, in my mind, the biggest weakness of these trials, but it doesn't stop there. I mean, there's even more because then you talk about, how can you talk about saturated fat as if it's one thing? We don't eat saturated fat, we eat food and what other foods we eat make a difference. Um, so the other slide I like to show is a huge plate of spaghetti with meat sauce and then a big salad with some beef on top, right? Those are both saturated fat, but your body is going to see them completely different. Or a big Philly cheesesteak sandwich with bread the size of your head this big, you know, versus just some cut up steak and broccoli and a little bit of butter, right? They're, they're both saturated fat. Studies see them the same, but trust me, your bodies do not see them the same. So that's the other weakness of these studies. And, and there's more about the food frequency questionnaire, how the data is collected. But anyway, my point being, that is incredibly weak science. If you tried to pass a new drug to get a drug approved with that level of science, you would be laughed out of the room. Now, the counter argument there is, well, it's the data we have, right? We need to, we need to make a decision. And so we have to use the data available to us. But there's the other question. Do we really need to make a decision? Like, do we think we can make one recommendation of a diet that's best for everybody? Like, I, I question that from the very beginning. And so I think that's sort of a, a faulty paradigm. But there are randomized controlled trials that look at saturated fat intake and their risk of cardiovascular disease or death. And the Cochrane Review recently came out with review of uh, an updated review in 2020 of these randomized controlled trials. And I wrote about it at Diet Doctor. And what they found was there was a very small increased risk of cardiovascular disease for those people who had higher saturated fat versus lower. But there was no difference in who died of cardiovascular disease, no difference of who lived and died overall. Then when you look at even further, only those who showed an increase in their LDL cholesterol had the increased risk. If you, had, if you ate more saturated fat but had no rise in your LDL cholesterol, there was no difference. And to take things even further, these were all pretty much in mixed high carb, high fat diets. So a completely different physiological situation. So I'm getting long winded and I apologize for that, but in a way I don't apologize for it because what it shows is when you sort of unpack the evidence, you can see it is kind of a house of cards. It's built on very weak evidence that to try and apply to everybody and say saturated fat is harmful is pretty absurd. And the same thing when it comes to saturated fat causes cancer. It's the same risk, the same healthy user bias, the same concept that we eat food, not saturated fat. And let's talk about what the risk is, right? The hazard ratio for these studies are like 1.18 or 1.2. What was the hazard ratio for smoking causing cancer? 30. Not 1.30, but 30. So that kind of helps put things into perspective in terms of what, you know, what, 
level of risk we're talking about. And the Annals of Internal Medicine came out with a couple series of, of nice publications that looked at the data for red meat and cardiovascular disease, red meat and cancer. And they said, yeah, some of these studies show a very small increased risk. But when you when you assign that a level of sort of confidence based on the quality of the study, it informs us, it, in no way does it inform us how we can recommend to you as an individual or as a physician knowing what you should recommend to your patient if lowering saturated fat is going to be beneficial at all because it's such razor thin margins. So, so the strength of a recommendation definitely does not match the quality of the science. And, and look, when you've been taught something for 50 years and when professional organizations have been making recommendations for 50 years and you've been practicing a certain way for 10, 20, 30 years, it's pretty hard to back up, to back out of that room, to change course and say, you know, no, maybe I was wrong. Admitting you were wrong is difficult. And if you throw on some potential legal considerations and you throw on sort of your identity as a physician, your identity of your recommendations, that makes it even harder. So I get it. I can see why people are very reluctant to this, but that's what, this is the type of message I want to get across is that we need to just not accept what we've been taught in these recommendations, but understand to a much deeper level what it really means. And what does it mean for me as a physician? And what does it mean for you as a patient in terms of what all this data can, can be boiled yeah, down and to? Yeah, and it's hard to sit through, but it takes that level of nuance and that level of deep dive to really know what people's risks are and what, what we're dealing with. And so I appreciate the summary. How does that... Like you got a, a patient, you put them on low carb or keto. Like, what kind of metrics or what are you looking for to either see a metabolic response or what makes you anxious? Because you mentioned how LDL can be associated with if they have a, a high saturated fat diets could be a, a risk of a cardiovascular events. So, like, what is your approach in general? Like, or what should us internists, cardiologists, so forth, be looking for? Yeah, well, I think, you know, the first question is always always getting back to what are the goals of the patient? You want to help the patient achieve their goals. Now, you want to do it in a way that's healthy, right? If they say, I just want to have more energy and feel good, you know, you don't want to do it in a way that's going to harm their health. So the metrics to follow, in my mind, are the metabolic factors, so the, the glucose, and not just fasting glucose. Fasting glucose is such a terrible um, marker to see what someone's risk of you know, metabolic disease or, or diabetes, because it's one snapshot for the entire day. That's why I'm a big fan of continuous glucose monitors or multiple checks throughout the day, because you want to know what that area under the curve is and what those excursions are after meals. So checking glucose is very important. I think checking insulin is also really important because we know that blood sugar can be normal because your pancreas is working overtime and cranking out a high level of insulin to keep it normal. But that's not sustainable. Eventually, that levy is going to break, and it's going to the glucose is going to start skyrocketing. So, knowing where your insulin, where your patient's insulin level is now, is very important too to see if you're on the precipice of a problem. So, glucose and insulin, and that, along with that, is HDL um, and triglycerides, specifically triglyceride to HDL ratio. People follow uh, because that's a big marker of metabolic health as well. And then, of course, what their weight is. You know, people who are obese don't just have metabolic arrangements, but they have orthopedic problems. They have trouble living their lives with, with energy or you know, walking up the stairs or playing with their grandkids. So helping that with significant weight loss, specifically uh, visceral adipose and abdominal adiposity, specifically that type of weight loss while maintaining or building lean muscle mass is a very important marker to follow. So I like 
rather than just weight, I like abdominal circumferences. If someone can get a DEXA scan, so you can follow their fat mass and lean body mass, that's ideal. Not everybody has access to those, of course. So that's where just simple waist circumference can be really helpful. And then of course, LDL is important, but this is a whole nother box. So this is a whole nother thing to discuss. I think following LDL is important. I'm a fan of also following advanced lipid markers like the size and density of the LDL, whether it's pattern A and pattern B. Now, there's a lot of controversy about this in cardiology, and most of the major recommendations from cardiology societies do not recommend checking those. The evidence doesn't support that it adds and sufficiently adds to treatment decisions. Well, that's if your treatment decision is statin or no statin, because statins don't benefit the size and density of LDL. But what does? Lifestyle, exercise, low carb diets are two of the two combined are the most impressive treatment for changing small dense LDL to larger, less buoyant LDL. I've seen nothing like that in my practice. You know, niacin used to be sort of the best way to do it, but now I think it's pretty clear. Low carb diets are definitely the best way to do it. And if you can add exercise onto that even better. So then the question becomes though, does it matter? Well, we have plenty of evidence showing that small dense LDL are a greater risk for cardiovascular disease than larger, less dense LDL. Okay, I think that's fairly clear. Where the debate is, is does the larger, less dense LDL have no risk factor implication or does it still have some, but just less than small? And that's where there's a debate between those in the low carb community who say, we don't have to worry about the large point LDL and those in the cardiology community who say, yes, LDL is still LDL. So I'm of the opinion that we absolutely cannot discount LDL. Even if it's the large buoyant LDL, we cannot discount it. But there are studies out there, even from the original Framingham study that show for those who had LDL above 200, but had HDL of 65 or 85, they did not see the increased risk of cardiovascular disease that others did with the high LDL. And if you look at LDL of less than 100, but HDL of 25, they had a much higher risk of heart disease than those with LDLs of 220, but good HDLs. So it's clear not all LDL is the same. The company it keeps matters. And that's why I think it's important to learn more about the type of LDL and to follow all these other metabolic risk parameters. And then you can factor it all in together to say, what is your overall cardiovascular risk rather than focusing on one risk factor? And then there's also the inflammatory markers like the CRP or some specific lipid inflammatory markers. So I think that's sort of one of the overview of how I like to approach monitoring people on a low-carb diet to make sure they are succeeding and succeeding in a way that's going to improve their overall health. Amazing, amazing. And I've heard a lot about, and I apologize, I'm still learning about this, CAC scores about in terms of assessing for risk of yeah. cardiovascular events. Can you explain this and, and also whether you use it in your practice as well? Yeah. So, so calcium scores, coronary artery calcification, CAC. Yeah. I'm a, I'm a big fan of those in my practice, but we have to understand what they show and what they don't. And this is, you know, I have so many patients come to me upset about their calcium score, wanting to know more about the calcium score, because we really have to understand what they show and what they don't. So calcium score, it's a CAT scan of your heart, non-contrast, very low radiation dose, about the same as a mammogram. And it tells you if you have calcification in the walls of the arteries to your heart. And that's important because it's in the walls of the artery. Now, now calcification in the wall of your artery isn't what causes a heart attack. 
It's plaque in the middle of your artery that causes a heart attack. So calcium score doesn't show that. But the studies show that the higher your calcification level, the higher the risk of developing a cardiovascular event over the next 10 years. And if that score is zero, then your risk is very low. So that's one of the other benefits um, where I see it playing into trying to decide is LDL a problem or not. If someone says, look, I don't want to treat it. I don't think it's a problem, but I don't want to ignore it. I want to monitor to see if it's a problem. Well, then getting calcium scores over you know, the next two, five, 10, 15 years, getting them at a certain interval to see if there's progression is certainly a reasonable approach. We don't have outcome data, again, to suggest that, but it's a reasonable approach. But we also have data showing that if your calcium score is zero, there is no difference if you're on a statin or not on a statin in your 10-year outcomes. And that's outcomes of cardiovascular disease, heart attacks. For calcium score of zero over 10 years, and this one study out of Walter Reed, there was no difference if you're on a statin or not on a statin. So a zero score can be pretty powerful. But where we can get into trouble, if someone's been on a low-carb diet for six months and gets a calcium score, and the calcium score is really high, and then you, know, you might say, see, I told you, this keto diet's killing you. You don't know when that calcium was put down, right? You've had 50 years of a standard American diet or a standard Western diet in six months on a keto diet. What do you think has been contributing more to that calcification? You know, you, there's no way to prove it. So that's why sometimes it's just a marker to follow over time to look for a rate of progression. It, it could be a really good way to use it. But also, if someone really wants to know, do I have concerning plaque? You know, do I have plaque inside the arteries? For that, you're going to need a CT angiogram where we actually inject the dye and it's a, it's a higher radiation dose, although the dose has certainly come down, so it's not exceedingly high. But you always have to decide risk benefit with every individual patient. So that's the difference between a calcium score and a CT angiogram. I think calcium score can be very useful, but we have to understand what it shows and what it doesn't show at the awesome. same time. Awesome. That, that's uh, super helpful because, like I said, you're hearing more and more people even ask, asking for CAC scores to get a sense of their risk. Because, you know, I don't think there's a lot of hockey in San Diego, but every, <laughs> I don't know, I don't, I don't want to guess exactly what the numbers would be, but you always hear the stories of fit guys, well, fit guys playing hockey and have their MI on the ice. I've, I've seen it happen. I've been there at least once uh, when that happened. And it's, I mean, it also gets down to metabolic health too, which I think could be deceiving. Like you've seen the people, I'm sure maybe you've seen this in your practice, where people look like they're not obese, maybe a little bit overweight, but not by any means obese. And, you know, when you do their metabolic profile, that's where you see some surprising, some surprising things. And so, yeah, I think this is the, the environment when we mostly see or colleagues of mine are are asking, should I be getting my CAC score and, and so forth. Yeah. But honestly, yeah. I, I do think more and more, you know, assessment of the, your metabolic health, like really getting a sense of where you're at is important, especially in light of where we're at in the pandemic. Yeah. I mean, that, that's a great point. We're around in the pandemic with the COVID pandemic. I mean, you know, we haven't heard the term pre-existing condition as much you know, in my entire life as we have in the past six months, mm -hmm. I think, because of the risk of pre-existing conditions with, with COVID. But what is a pre-existing condition? It's easy if you say high blood pressure or type 2 diabetes, but what about insulin resistance? What about metabolic dysfunction? So there was, there was one paper that came out saying even just obesity was an increased risk factor. 
But my guess was it was those who, who were obese and had metabolic dysfunction, and we just weren't measuring the metabolic dysfunction. There's not so much the weight, but it's the metabolic disease internally that increases the risk. Uh, so, I mean, I think you're right. In this pandemic, it brings the attention to the need for metabolic health that much more. Absolutely. You know, and you just made me think about, too, the couple of few of the COVID patients that we had, like when, especially the diabetics, the, the ironic thing is they're blood sugars were extremely difficult to control. Like it just, to me, it's just like the sign that once again, they're obese, but their metabolic profile, I think was exceedingly poor. And you've heard me say this before. I just, we really need to bring attention to this. And the time is now more than ever. Yeah. You know, every crisis provides an opportunity or a silver lining. So if we can come out of this COVID crisis uh, with the silver lining being we now know how important metabolic health is and focusing on that as a preventive strategy, not just for heart attacks, not just for strokes, but the next time an infectious disease pandemic comes around or even when influenza season comes around, if we can take away the importance of focusing on our metabolic health, then, then we can turn it into something positive rather than just being a huge negative and drain on the world. Yeah. And honestly, this is just more and more fuel to push this, buddy. Often like to end in on, on a positive note. And so do you have like in your years of practice, especially since moving towards the lifestyle aspect of things and, and the low carb keto world, do you have any patients or stories that come to mind where you've you've actually felt you've truly made a difference in in, in a patient's or, or family member's life? Oh my goodness, yes. I mean I it's so many that it's it's hard to pick just one because of the same concept that we have so often as physicians that you know type 2 diabetes is a chronic condition and you're on your medications forever. A patient only has to hear that a couple times to think for sure that is the way it is. So then to help them come off their medications and normalize their numbers within the course of months, like their their mind is blown and their eyes are wide and they can't thank you enough because they thought they were destined to you know, eventually have kidney failure and go on dialysis or have an amputation and be burdened with drugs for the rest of their lives. So if you can take that away, I mean, that's, that seems miraculous to them. And it, it's not that miraculous. It's actually not that hard to do. And that, that's the amazing part. But to, to see that gratitude is unbelievable. And that's part of what I sort of referenced earlier. The, the doctors who I've been talking to about this it's sort of the, the underlying message that I hear, whether it's an example like Dr. David Unwin in the UK, who I interviewed for my podcast a, a while ago, he was ready to quit. He was like burnt out, fried, just really disillusioned with medicine and was ready to quit. And then when he started using low carb and started to see the impact he had, he transformed his whole practice. And now he can't even think of quitting. He's having too much fun doing this, helping people. And doctors like Dr. Brian Lenskis or Dr. Tro Kalajian, I mean, there's there are many different examples of doctors, and they're just the vocal ones. There's so many others who aren't even vocal about it that it can really impact the joy you get as a physician. Because why are we docs? We're docs to help people improve their lives and get healthier. And when you can see that, oh my God, it's so much better. And that's why when I joined Diet Doctor as the medical director, I didn't want to give up medical practice completely. So I I kept a medical practice because this is, I get so much enjoyment out of it that I just want to keep going with it and helping people understand this. And and now a big part of my role is helping other doctors understand this as well so that they can get that enjoy 
so that they can impact their patients that way. So that, that's what I hope for the world. Wow. And, and, you know, I, and I feel the enthusiasm. I feel the energy. It's, it's so true what you're saying, though, Brett, like to know that you're actually making a difference. Like, I'm not trying to be Debbie Downer, but our job could be quite disheartening. Like when you have the patients adding more medication, you know, and hearing those stories of things not working over and over again, and actually coming up with plans and interventions that are sustainable, that they can achieve their goals, and not only helping the patient, but seeing helping the doctors to to uh, help others. Like, this is just, like, it's so good, Brett. And guys, you have to listen to, I mean, Diet Doctor is massive, but you guys have to listen to Diet Doctor. Just recently really enjoyed the episode with Dr. Tony Hampton, it was amazing. Guy making a difference in the black community. You guys are doing incredible work. I love the fact, once again, you're doing free CME to educate the uh, docs out in the community. And Brett, I, I've said this on your show. I'm going to say it to you. The guy's a killer interviewer, man. Like just <laughs> great questions, great flow. I love it. So Brett, just to be clear, where can people track you down? Yeah, well, dietdoctor.com is probably the best place or the YouTube channel for Diet Doctor where your podcast, my my interview with you will be coming out shortly. So I think we, we're at 53 right now and you're going to be number 55. So you're coming up shortly. And then for my medical practice at lowcarbcardiologist.com, that's where people can learn about working with me. But most of my attention now for what I'm writing and, and all the content is at dietdoctor.com. So that's the best place to go. Guys, Dr. Bresher, changing the boogie, guys. I love it. Thank you so much for joining the show. And we are going to do this again, my friend. My pleasure. Thank you. And thank you for all your energy and everything you're doing to help change the the whole the whole spectrum of, of healthcare. It's amazing. So keep up the good work, Quadro. I oh, appreciate it, Brett. Thank you so much. I said it once before, I'm going to say it again. That's what I'm talking about, changing that boogie. Dr. Bresher, I hope you enjoyed the podcast. Leave ratings five-star ratings and reviews on Apple iTunes. It helps us in terms of getting that visibility out because you know we're trying to transform healthcare people, so help us do that. Leave any comments at quadcast99 at gmail.com. Follow us on Facebook, YouTube, Twitter at Quadcast. Shout out to our friends. Shout out to our fans in North Battleford, Saskatchewan. You know we love you the most. Sup? Anyway, guys. We appreciate all the love. Thanks for tuning in. We'll see you again soon and stay fresh.